On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Mark Combs of Chumba Cycles in Austin, Texas. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I try to help my guests tell their story about how they got started in the whole bike world and how they got to where they are. And I really like to talk about the ideas and the values that that we hold. Um, You know, certainly we, we all go about it differently and everybody has a different perspective. And some people would spend a lot of time on some detail that other people would never consider spending their time that way. And I also like to talk about, you know, the things that are really frustrating and the things that are really satisfying because bike frame building tends to involve quite a bit of both of those. You need to be pretty patient through the frustrations. And the reason that so many people are drawn to it is because a lot of parts of it are very satisfying. And so I really like to talk with my guests about, you know, what they how they feel about those subjects. This week, my guest is Mark Combs from Chumba. He's in Austin, Texas. And so he has sort of a partnership with uh, this guy, Vince, and and their their partners, and they're uh, maybe have an employee or two from time to time that they work with. And so uh, he used to do Majeco cycles. Uh, I met him at the Philly Bike Expo in probably 2014 or so when he uh, had a booth and was showing those bikes. And he also had a spell working at Alchemy, and we talk about all these things. And prior to all this, he worked in aerospace in California for like 20 years. And so uh, he's got a pretty interesting story. The stuff that he's doing now is, you know, really sharp. It's just a small production company. They have models, but they do customization if you choose. And the welds look awesome, and the fabricating looks great, and they have a really cool, tidy little shop. And he's just a really good fabricator and bike builder and and he's got this unique position where he did work by himself in a you know a single single person custom brand like a lot of our guests on this show and uh, now he runs more of like a partnership business where he gets to focus more of his time on the shop work actually and uh and the primary business partner vince spends a lot of time with customer work and emails and when i talk to these guys a lot of times uh you know vince will respond to my email right away because he's so on top of that stuff and uh it seems like they have a good dynamic between the two of them where uh, mark can get a lot of the fabrication done and stay focused on that and Vince is you know really personable and good uh working with customers and attending to so many other of the variety of things if you own and run your own small business you know that it's kind of hard to do a lot of the thing that you principally do whether that's you know bike frame building or for me it's machining or whatever because there's just so many little tasks all the time you know legal stuff that needs to get filed and customer work and uh, packing and shipping all these things and so i wanted to talk to mark some about this idea that like if you really love the hands-on fabricating and welding and cutting tubes and all this stuff but you're the only person running your entire business you're probably only going to spend a smaller portion of your time doing that work and you know, the right kind of business partnership, or, uh, you know, if you worked at a company like seven cycles or something, maybe you'd get a little taste of that if you were a fabricator there. But anyway, you know, by, by having more people involved, it allows somebody to maybe focus more. And so we get to talk about that. We talk a little bit about fixies (laughs) track bikes with the NJS stamp. Um, if you don't know what that is, it's just, uh, in Japan, they have like bike track racing that I think you can bet on. It's called Kieran Racing. And so in order to make it like a level playing field for that, they have to like certify all the parts as being NJS. 
And so anyway, if you collect that crap, it's more valuable if it's actually stamped NJS. So just so you know. Anyway, I'm going to roll the interview. When I was 18, I started working in aerospace. And uh, at that time, you know, I was just a young buck. So they would put me in the back in the fabrication department. And this is before water jets. So basically, we're taking little templates and scribing and cutting out a lot of aluminum parts that would later be formed into aerospace components. Uh, mm -hmm. That lasted about a year or so. Then I started working on uh, heavy equipment, big hydraulic uh, powered machines. And my department was stretch forming. So I would take uh, aluminum extrusions or uh, sheets of aluminum and we would form them into aerostructures, which is basically what our company did. So basically I've been frame building my whole <laughs> professional career. It's just one flew in the air and the other one is now peddled by human beings. So I did that for 23 years. So I moved to Texas and then how I really got into bikes is, uh, probably, I mean, I was always into bikes. Like I raced BMX for a while as a kid and, you know, rode my bike everywhere is that's what kids do. So I always like in the eighties, it was always BMX parts and BMX bikes and all that cool stuff. Uh, then skateboarding came along and punk rock and all that. So bikes took a back seat for a while. Uh, <laughs> then like the, I would say like the early two thousands, I started going, uh, doing a lot of like social rides kind of in LA and Los Angeles where I was living at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I started, you know, going on those rides, and I would see all the kids on, you know, that was like Dixie Whip conversions were the, the shit back then, you know. Yeah. And uh, so then I started talking to some guys, and they were like, they were the NJS kids, you know. They had oh, Karen yeah. bikes, you know, all that cool shit, the sparkly paint jobs, you know, the whole Karen, you know, aesthetic. So I got super into those bikes. And I was like, wow, these are super cool. And there's like dudes making these things in small little shops in Japan and they're awesome bikes. And, uh, so I started getting into that scene and, you know, going on eBay and the internet and collecting all the NJS stuff I could get and <laughs> building Karen bikes. And then, uh, one of my friends in LA was Megan Dean, who, uh, oh, cool. does, Moth, does Moth Attack. Yeah. Yeah. So Megan had went to Yamaguchi and uh, maybe about a year and a half before I did. And so I saw her go there. Then, you know, I was super stoked on what she was doing. And I was like, shit, I know my way around some metal. Maybe I should go to Yamaguchi. That would be super awesome. Mm -hmm. so, so I went to Yamaguchi in uh, April of 2010. So it's been... 10 years now since I went there. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was at Yamaguchi, I was like, man, this guy's the jam. I'm going to pick this guy's brain for as, as much information as I can get. So when I went to Yamaguchi, I made like a, a half fillet brazed, half lug bike. I was like, I'm going to learn as much technique from this dude in this two weeks that I can. Yeah. And, and then so from there, it just, you know, you start going. I, I finished Yamaguchi. I was still living in California at the time. Uh, so I started building, you know, first you're like, oh, I'm going to build frames. Well, 
now you need a jig, now you need tools, now you need all that good stuff. So luckily, I was still working in aerospace. I still had access to uh, water jets and CNCs. So I would have my buddies in the machine shop draw me up stuff in CAD, and they would start making me you know, fork benders and you know bottom bracket posts so I can build my own jig and you know start there with like an eighty twenty jig mm-hmm. and you know just work your way up from there slowly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And so that was uh, uh, two thousand ten. You took that class and you were living in California. You start building some of your own bikes. And did you, uh, you know, you used to have your own brand and it was, was it Majeco was the name? That's correct. Yeah. And so you did that for a number of years. Uh, I remember seeing yeah. you had a booth at the Philly Bike Expo the one year and that was the first time I met you and we talked for a couple minutes and you had some really, yeah. really cool multiple color paint jobs. And I, I like the aesthetic of your bikes for sure. They looked really slick. I think those would have been no, mostly fillet braised at that time, right? Yeah, I think at, at Philly at that time, I was, yeah, they were probably all fillet braids at that time, for yeah. sure, yeah. And so you had been doing TIG welding in your career probably for a long time, or, or did you never do TIG welding at work? No, I, what what was good uh, where I grew up is, uh, in, in, I grew up in Long Beach, and in our high school, we had region, regional occupational programs. Mm-hmm. So it was cool in high school is that uh, we had metal shop, but our metal shop was two periods long and our, our teacher let us do whatever. So I wouldn't mess around with welding back then, you know, you're just messing with like aluminum and just wacky stuff doing big old bubble gum welds because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, you know, but I was doing, I was doing my custom work, you know, and I was like, I, I, I absolutely absolutely love the braised bikes like they just look so clean just yeah philip braised philip braised bikes is where i really fell in love with frame building yeah but it's 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 a labor of love and it's a tremendous amount of work yeah and it you know there's it's so i mean you can get really good at philip obviously and i got pretty good towards the end but it's no matter how good you are to make it the way you want it, it's so much work. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's so labor intensive, and and I love it. But after a while, it's like I need to learn how to take well. <laughs> yeah, because I need to. You know, it just as far as like if you're trying to run a business and you're trying to make a a little bit of money, like just the time involved in the Philippines bikes uh-huh. is, is is tremendous. So also, you know, I was doing my custom stuff here. Uh, after I got back from Yamaguchi, I, uh, about six months later, I moved to Texas with my wife who had a job here. So we came to Texas and I was doing my custom stuff for a couple of years in my little shop. And then, um, you know, I signed up for NABs for 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go to a, a new frame builder table. Uh, that was the, one of the ones in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, I signed up a couple months before the show and then, you know, I was doing, making stuff for nabs and, uh, trying to get, uh, like a buy lamb track bike I was trying to do at that time Whoa. for nabs. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I painted in my, 
itself, which was a mistake because that's <laughs> <laughs> you're trying. If you're trying to frame build and then you're trying to paint, like paint takes almost longer than building the frame itself to get yeah. it right. And I, <laughs> you know, so I was trying to do all that stuff. Uh, and then I was bumping around, like it might've been like on the nab site. Maybe they had a Twitter feed or something. I don't know, but I was looking and I saw an ad that Alchemy was looking for a part-time fabricator and they were here in Austin. I was like, shit, that's awesome. I can do my little custom stuff and then I can also get a paycheck, which is, you know, the ultimate thing is to get a paycheck. Yep. Uh, so I started working there and what got me into like really being interested in TIG welding is that at the time, uh, so I went to work for Alchemy and I was basically the fabricator. I mitered all the frames, uh, the carbon frames, tie, stainless steel. I did all the mitering. And then our welder at the time was Wes Williams from Willet Spike fame. Oh, cool. So, you know, Wes has his own uh, great and tragic history in fray building, but uh, he was super nice to me, and Wes and I got along great. And he started me showing, he showed me a lot of stuff because, I mean, Wes is probably seen it all from his ears at Ibis to Willits to all that. Mm -hmm. And then I would watch him, I would watch him TIG weld and knock a bike out. And like the time it took me to like Philip raise a bottom bracket. And I was like, <laughs> what, 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 what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what really got me into like, all right, this is uh, I, I need to figure out how to, how to TIG weld. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah so and and nowadays of course with with the work that you're doing at chumba you're just tig welding all the time and and the work that you do with the tig welder is amazing looks really really sharp uh so clearly, oh, thanks, man. clearly you figured it out uh and you you know i mean you have the volume of work to support the amount of practice it would take to get really good at it uh like what were yeah. those what were those first steps like did when you were at alchemy did you end up doing like finish welding of bikes no, so at Alchemy, uh, so I was at Alchemy for almost a year, and uh, we started getting a little bit more responsibilities there, like uh, as far as like the carbon bikes, like I would miter them all, and then I would, you know, tack them all together, and then right where we were getting into stuff, like I was working with Matt, and Matt was about to, he was into showing me like layup and all that stuff for the carbon bikes. And then they decided to move to Colorado. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were here in Austin. They asked me if I wanted to go with them, but, you know, my wife is here in Austin and she has a good job. So we weren't going to pack up and, you know, go to Colorado to work with them. Yeah. Which was, which was a bummer because I had fun there and I, and I learned a lot at Alchemy. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So it was probably... I didn't start TIG welding until maybe like a year before I started at Chumba. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the, the way I got into it, I was, you know, scrolling Craigslist forever. And I found a, a pipe welder, a, a pipe welder in Houston mm -hmm. who had bought, he had bought a, a Miller Maxstar for like a super cheap rate through his work. He used it for like five hours. 
Mm-hmm. And he had it up on Craig. Uh, he had it up on Craigslist for like a thousand dollars. Wow! So I, I called him. So I called him and immediately drove the two and a half hours to Houston and picked it up and then started going to town on that welder and trying to and figuring that out, which was which was the task in itself, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You had been around yeah. it enough, long enough that you had a sense of how it works, but just that that coordination and the muscle memory and everything that goes into getting good results, you were pretty fresh with, I it, imagine. Oh yeah, exactly. And I, and I think the the fillet braising kind of goes with that a little bit. Yeah, you know, at least with your two with your two hands, but you know, but then you had the foot, so you got <laughs> you know. Using three appendages. Lucky I played drums for for years, oh, yeah. so that yeah. kind of that kind of wasn't too bad. But but yeah, definitely. Uh, so I was doing that for about a year, and then uh, you know I was just working in my little shop in Texas doing my custom stuff, and then my phone rang out of the blue one day, and it was Aaron from Chumba, who was the owner at the time, and uh, I had never met Aaron or Vince, and they just called me out of the blue. And they were looking for a frame builder. And I was like, wow, that's cool. Okay. And <laughs> at that time, at that time, they were, uh, you know, paycheck. Uh, at that time, they were about a half an hour west of Austin. And so I went out there and I took a couple of my bikes out there and talked to Vince and Aaron for a while. And, you know, we worked out a deal and then they hired me. So that's where I definitely got a lot of time behind the, the TIG weld hood is when I first started working for Chamba and knocking out all their stuff. Yeah. And so uh, I've talked to you and Vince some at Chumba, but I don't really know the story of Chumba, uh, you know, prior to your involvement or, um, do, I mean, do you know how that company got started and, uh, you know, like they were, they were building frames before you got involved, like who was doing the building or was it contract manufacturer yeah, so uh, I mean, Chumba really started like back in the '90s, I believe, out in California, uh-huh. and they were making they were making crazy like aluminum full squish bikes, like super downhill stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the the ownership of that got changed over a few times. Like, I'm not really sure about like the early early history of Chumba. Uh, but then Aaron Foreman had purchased it, and he's the one that brought it to Texas. Okay. So, and, and then he hired Vince, and so Aaron and Vince kind of resurrected Chumba from its uh, late 90s, early mid-90s uh, form and transformed it into what it is today. So at that time, uh, they, had, they had a builder for a, a little while, and... Uh, and then they were doing contract work, I think with Zen up in Oregon with oh, yeah. bikes. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that was happening before I got there. And then they really wanted to bring it in house. So uh, that's when that's when they reached out to me. And that's when I started working there. And that mm-hmm. was probably uh, 2015, I mm-hmm. believe, is, is when I started working at Chumbo. Okay. And so now you so, guys are I, you're, you're in Austin now. Yeah, so uh, I worked at Chumba as an employee for two two and a half years, 
And then uh, Aaron approached us and uh, asked us if, if we would like to uh, purchase the company, Vince and I, and our, our families. And uh, he, he had another business. He was in uh, prosthetics. So he was going to go back to the prosthetic business and you know, he wanted Chumba to go stay in good hands, so he approached Vince and I uh, in early 2018, and so we worked out a deal, and in early 2018, that's when uh, Vince and myself and our wives, that's when we uh, purchased Chumba and took over uh, control of it. Gotcha. I would say. I mean, control, that's, <laughs> control sounds like a big, fancy corporate word, but <laughs> it's... Vince, Vince and I were basically doing everything mm-hmm. anyways. Yeah. And, and so Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So, so the way that it operates these days is that you and Vince are the, like basically the primary workers of the business. And then yeah, the, the, there's like a pool of ownership between you guys and your wives. And then is there uh do you have other people that work with you or is it mainly just you and Vince there? Uh, so it was Vince and I, and we've had a couple of mechanics, uh, come in and out to, to do our builds. Yeah. Uh, so we had a couple of mechanics and, uh, a few months ago we had a, a young kid come into the shop and he's a big fan of frame building and he's a super smart kid. His name is Wolfgang. And, uh, so we brought him on. And he was supposed, he's actually supposed to be at Yamaguchi right now learning frame building, but they canceled the April class. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so we hired him on, uh, he's super interested in frame building. And uh, so we hired him part time a couple months ago. And uh, we brought him on full time, like three weeks before, you know, the COVID 19 shit hit the fan. Yeah. <laughs> So, so basically, yeah, it's, it's me and Vince and our new employee Wolfgang. And then, uh, my wife, Maura, she is like our financial person. So she's able to do all the books. And then Vince's wife, Michelle, Vince and his wife, Michelle, are both amazing artists. So, uh, Michelle helps us a lot with art and design and getting, uh, stuff like that put together. And Vince, Vince himself is an amazing artist. So mm-hmm. that, and so Vince, Vince does the website work, Vince does the sales, Vince's components and, you know, all the front end stuff. And then I'm in the back blasting music, trying to knock out bikes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, it, it, yeah, so it's a good partnership. I mean, uh, Vince is an amazingly hard worker and his knowledge of components and builds and all that stuff, it's just, to me, is mind blowing. So to have a partner like that is just, I couldn't ask for anything better Yeah. to have someone that can handle, handle all that front end stuff. And then let me focus on the back end of, of making bikes. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who will caution against starting a partnership in business for a lot of reasons. And it's, you know, it's probably based in the reality that a lot of times things don't work out that well. People don't always get along and and when things don't work out, the stakes are pretty high. You know, you have a lot invested and it's messy. But 
uh, man, like what a oh, nice yeah. thing to be able to work together with other people. And, uh, you know, like if you're trying to do every single thing yourself, you have to wear all these different hats at once and you don't get to spend any too much time doing any one task. And it's just, it feels kind of hectic. Yeah. Whereas if you partner with the right people, I have to imagine, you know, one person can be a super expert in these things and one person can be a super expert in these things. And it allows you to really focus on, you know, your strengths if you're a good complement to each other. And uh, to me, it sounds like a really nice thing, you know, you know, it's so, so long as you have people who kind of balance each other out, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and well, it was good because, you know, Vince and I, we worked together for two and a half years, you know, as employees. Yeah. So we built a, a good a good camaraderie and, and working relationship. And we've become good friends over the years. And uh, it's just, I, you know, I, I did my, my custom stuff for a while. And, and like you said, being able to... Uh, stay on top of emails and phone calls and orders and people's paint jobs and their geometries and actually yeah. building the bikes and you know staying on all top on top of all that is just it's it's a tremendous tremendous amount of work. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and yeah, go ahead. Jeff. I was just gonna say, you know related to what I do with, you know, machining and making and shipping tools and stuff. It's like, there are some, some tasks that I do that just feel like ridiculously productive. Like when I actually get the CNC machine cranking through parts and it's all set up or something. And it's like, you really yeah. see a lot of work getting done and it feels really satisfying. And then there's these other tasks that you spend a ton of time on that don't really seem to generate what feels like a lot of finished work. And, uh, yeah, just like you can imagine having more bodies working together on the same project you'd be able to do that stuff that looks <laughs> more productive you'd be able to keep that going more of the time even if everything needs to happen uh in order to make the whole process work uh you know you those those yeah. seemingly less productive tasks get spread across two people and uh, you know it's just I imagine just so much more uh, work would would get done with uh, I don't know like you know like shipping stuff that just takes a lot of time oh. to like package things oh. so that they don't get yeah. damaged and to put the labels on and then you know maybe you didn't centralize the information just right so you got to track down this email to figure out exactly this one detail about the order or something and it's like it, it you spend a lot of time doing that but then if you have two people who are responsible for all the goings on of the business. Well, now one person is at least getting a lot of stuff done while the other person is, you know, doing that task. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and we've been fortunate that we've been, we've been busy and we've been fortunate that we're at, we are able to hire another person and our, our new employee Wolfgang is exactly that type of stuff, you know, is that, before, you know, Vince and I would tag team, you know, shipping bikes and, you know, you still have customers in the queue that are waiting and to spend, you know, half a day packing a bunch of bikes. Uh, it does, it, it, the, the small things do suck up a lot of time. <laughs> and, you know, when, when you have people in the queue that, you know, I, I coming from like aerospace and like people, they want their their stuff, so yeah. I've always been like, if there's if there's one person in the queue, like my I'm like laser focused on like let's get this person their bike. Yeah, and 
it, it gets hard, man, when you're 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 a small business and you're trying to do all those things. So fortunately, we've we've been able to bring on someone that can help us tremendously, you know, because taking two hours to to pack up a couple bikes is that's you know five or six emails that Vince can get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that amount of time. For sure, yeah. When I had uh, Ross Schaefer from Salsa on the podcast, he said, you know, he realized that frame builders mostly had this reputation of not shipping things on time, and he said that with the, with the mountain bike boom, he felt like he could he could pretty much stay in business just by shipping on time, <laughs> like just by shipping stuff on the date yeah. that he said he was going to do it and delivering the product. That like that was almost enough to ensure the success of his business in that era, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And yeah. you know that I think there's a truth to that to everything we do in in any sort of business, and it you know it's not always enough, and sometimes it's more than enough, and you know maybe that's an exaggeration, but uh, you know I really try to do that with my stuff to the extent that I can, you know, just have things in stock or or ship pretty quickly and manage expectations uh, because I feel like it's just that's like one of the most important things, you know. People just you know when they finally decide that they're going to buy a bike or whatever it is. It's like, well, they've made up their mind, and now they kind of want it. <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, and it, it takes time to do things. But uh, if you can, if you can help people with that, that one component of it, it makes such a huge difference. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and that's the thing too is that you know these uh, uh, anyone making a handmade bike nowadays, it it's not it's not a cheap item. No. And if someone is 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 uh, putting their faith in us to to buy a bike from us we feel it's our responsibility as a business to uh do what we say we're going to do yeah and if if we told someone at chumbo that our your bike is shipping on thursday we do our our damnedest to get that bike out on thursday because they put our faith in us yeah. And and giving us our hard on money, and we feel a, a obligation to meet their needs and to you know uh, do what we say where we're going to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an interesting time too because you know you have like uh, you know like the supply chain of something like Amazon.com is insane. You know, like the warehouses and the scale and the systems that they yeah. have in place in order to be able to, to pack an order so quickly and they're so efficient. And it's like, if you compare yourself to that, it's like, there's just completely different business models. You know, it's a handmade good that's custom that requires more conversation that requires highly skilled people. And it's just a longer lead time inherently. And so on the one hand, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to pretend that you're something that you're not, you know, you're, you are very different from this other right. model. But, uh, for me too, like a lot of times I notice that I can get something out the same day for just a little bit more effort than if I spent a whole month dilly dallying. And so, uh, right. it's like, if I just put in a little bit more work, it makes so much difference to somebody. And so that's always how I approach it. But, um, but yeah, I guess, you know, there's the other side of that coin is sometimes you got to realize that it's like, you can't, you can't literally be as fast as like some of these other things that people are have have sort of like uh, conditioned people's expectations for like instant gratification, and that's it's not always possible. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the hard part too. It's for a while, you know, we had uh, frames in stock, and we were doing that for a while. We're like, all right, we're we're gonna because 
in the in the reality of it all is that Chumba is pretty much a we're we make handmade bikes, but we're pretty much a production company as far as like geometries and sizes and things. Mm-hmm. So for a while, we're we were pre-making frames and you know hanging them upstairs and waiting for them to be purchased, and then we'd send them to powder and paint and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then after a while, uh, Vince and I we decided that to broaden the scope of the company a bit more and utilizing my skills uh, as a previous like custom builder, we started implementing a lot more custom options into our, our frames as far as like, we didn't, we're not, we're, we're working on a full custom program right now, but so, and that'll be coming out pretty soon. We're hoping to launch it at NAB this year, but of course that was yeah. delayed and all that good stuff. So we have been introducing more customizations into our frames, so we don't make as much stuff ahead of time as we used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do find a lot of customers might want, uh, if we're making a gravel bike, they might want a taller stack height or a different top tube length. Or So we've been doing... We've been trying to go that way a little bit more and offering more customizations. So we've, we've kind of stopped with the, we're going to make a bunch of inventory type stuff. Yeah. And that was good for people that want something, instant gratification. Uh, but we kind of changed a little bit and we found people have been pretty receptive to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like extra water bottle bosses or rear rack mounts or fender mounts. And that's given us the option, uh, in that respect of meeting more people's wants and needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, you'd be more of the expert on this, but to me, it seems like a lot of times if you're going to go to the trouble of hand building it, uh, in a small shop, you know, with like one fabricator, it's like, that's just like an inherently, uh, less efficient system than like factory production. And it seems to me like if you're going through the trouble of building with that process, um, then if you can also incorporate custom features like, you know, bottle bosses and, and that sort of rack mounts, uh, that adds a lot of value to the process. And so it seems like there's an argument to be made for if you're going to do it, you know, handmade in a small shop, you might as well do it full custom. Uh, but of course, yeah. if you can, if you can batch things out or something, then, uh, it, it probably is efficiency gains too, to, to do things ahead of time. So. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where a lot of my like uh, aerospace background helps as far as like in aerospace, I was, we had committees and uh, certain, both of the companies I worked for in aerospace, like we had to get, you know, uh, ISO 9001 certified and uh, SPC and AQS and all these uh, process controls. So I've been able to take some of that and not get super crazy because we're only, you know, in aerospace, you have a 150, 200 man shop. You really need those processes when yeah. it's just, you know, two or three people that uh, you don't have to be as strict with the processes. But I think that experience in manufacturing and getting parts out has really lend itself good to uh, running a business as far as, uh, fabrication, bicycle fabrication, is I can take those skill sets I learned in aerospace and kind of apply them to the bicycle manufacturing process, which is, it, it has helped a lot. Yeah. So 
When you're building bikes, do you do one bike from start to finish and then start the next one? Or do you batch a certain steps? Or um, like I know when I talked to Brad Bingham, he was talking, you know, he has a handful of anvil frame fixtures and that helps him especially with the titanium process and the the back purge time uh it helps him to build stuff yeah. with a certain sort of batch process uh you know how do you go right. about building the chumba bikes do you do you know do you just have one frame fixture in the shop or what does your workflow look like uh so we have two we have two anvil fixtures currently and uh usually the way it works is yeah we try to batch as much stuff as we can so we'll evaluate our orders and what's in the queue now uh and we'll kind of strategize the best way to batch it some parts like some bikes like our sendero like uh we got the curved seat tube and it's got a dropper port and all that good stuff and you know we're making a, a bent seat tube bike so obviously our our curve of our seat tube is going to be pretty much in the same spot because we want to wrap around that tire nice and, and beautifully yep. and aesthetically pleasing. So, like, if we're going to make Senderos, I can I can pretty much batch all those seat tubes together, and it's kind of it's kind of a a little more complicated process when you're dealing with the bent seat tube, obviously. So, if I'm setting up my bridge port to miter that bottom bracket uh, miter on that bent seat tube, I'm going to batch it and I'm going to do all my C-tubes at once. So usually we try to batch as much as we can, uh, depending on the queue and how long someone's been waiting or whatever, obviously we'll, we'll go in and, and, and do something one-off, but we usually try to batch as much as possible just to make that process, you know, uh, a little more efficient. Usually yeah. like with our gravel bikes, like our, a lot of our rear ends are pretty consistent as far as like the, the numbers on like our chain stay length or something. So if I am doing chain stays and I'm, you know, I'm taking my, my Anvil main tube monitoring fixture off my hard inch, you know, we got another hard inch now so I can dedicate that one to just the chain stays. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, currently if I'm take if I'm disassembling the machine, I'm putting another fixture up there. I'm just going to go ahead and, and knock out as much stuff as it, you know, I got the machine set up, so let's yeah. go ahead and knock out as much stuff as we can. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's another question I have is, I mean, you know, you look at a, a shop like, you know, I know the old fat city, uh, shop was like this and, you know, drew from engine cycles and there's a handful of people who really have like a lot of machines that are set up for dedicated operations. I'm sure in a shop like yours, that's sort of the, the goal is getting enough machines that you don't need to set up and tear down each machine for a specific sort of operation like that. Uh, is it where yeah. you're at in Texas? Is it hard to pick up like old horizontal mills? Like I know in, in my part of the country, you know, closer to Boston and all that, uh, it's not terribly hard yeah. to find these old machines. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, I mean, I, we did get a hard inch off eBay uh, a couple months ago. We got it for 800 bucks, so I was pretty stoked on that. Nice. As far as, like, cruising, cruising around Craigslist here in Texas, like, it's it's pretty tough to get stuff here. Yeah. For sure. You know, it's... Back east where you are, I'm sure it's a little a little easier to mm -hmm. to acquire some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you so you kind of alluded to this, but I think a lot of us who who like machines and have a shop and and whatever have this sort of 
for me, it's entertainment to just, you know, cruise like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or eBay for like machines and stuff. It's just entertainment. Like I'm oh, not yeah. even in the market a lot of times. I'm just like, oh, that's cool. Uh, but, and you kind of alluded to that. Yeah, yeah, totally. But anyway, yeah. uh, I mean, I've over the years, I've definitely found all sorts of small little, you know, nickels and, and brown and sharp and different small horizontal mills that'd be perfect for dedicated mitering setups. And yet here I am, I have this yeah. small shop and I don't have any too much floor space and whatever. But, you know, I'll send them to some of my other friends and, uh, you know, sometimes they pick them up. But they're just, you know, you can get, if you know where to look and you wait around, you'll find these horizontal mills that'd be perfect for these setups. Like 500 bucks, a couple hundred bucks sometimes. It's crazy. And it's, uh, oh, it, yeah. it's a shame when it's like, man, this would be perfect. But like, I don't, I don't even have room for it right now. Oh, oh yeah, man. I mean... We're, we're, you know, Austin is, is, is in a fairly expensive city. So finding, finding a shop itself and, you know, yeah. is, is, is kind of hard if you don't want to spend, you know, four or $5,000 a month for a shop. Yeah, really? So <laughs> floor space and, uh, it's definitely, uh, is top priority. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, that I think about a lot is shop space. I mean, I have a slightly different, it's most, mostly the same considerations for what I do with my CNC machining and stuff. Uh, is it's, it's hard to find good shop space. I think Carl strong would recommend to people, you know, like if you can, if you can build out of your house in your garage or something and that is viable for you, then you should just do that because you'd probably save a lot of money and pay your own mortgage and yeah. something to that. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like I've heard him talk about that. And uh, for a lot of people, I think that's a, a good system. Now with what you're doing with Chumba, you know, you have an employee and it's you and Vince working together. And I don't know how often you have customers coming in, but there gets to be a point at a certain scale where that maybe doesn't work out so well to have it, at your residence if you even could get one and uh when you know i look a lot for because my shop is way too small and i look all the time at yeah. like you know what are my options for other things and it's like well you could buy sort of a rural house and you could have a pole barn shop or something and that'd be cool and you're in the middle of nowhere uh but if you want to actually yeah. rent you know like from um like in cities, there'll be some sort of like, uh, you know, like industrial park and there'll be like little units one next to the other. And they want, you know, in a city, yep. a lot of times like a dollar a square foot per month or, uh, you know, more in the expensive cities and maybe less in some of the less expensive cities for sort of warehouse space. That's really expensive. You know, if you want like 1500 square feet, you know, oh, you're yeah. looking at, you know, over a thousand dollars a month for this little thing. And unless you have a, a proven business that really brings in a lot of revenue uh that's would be a really scary prospect to sign yourself on like a three or a five-year lease oh absolutely i mean it, we're fortunate is it we we're actually you know we're able to pay ourselves and make salary but still it's very it, it, it's super expensive i mean here in austin dude you're like it's not unheard of to see three four five dollars a square foot yeah yeah that's crazy which is is crazy yeah 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 it's it's a lot of money for for spaces and and i guess what's kind of gets me sometimes is that i just get i just get frustrated about this but it's like you know you look at like a house like a residential space and you have trim work and you have drywall and you have nice flooring and you have like (laughs) 
kitchens with cabinets. Like, I don't know. Like, I worked for, for guys who did trim and cabinet work and stuff. Cabinets are expensive. You know, like, all these things that are that make, like, oh, a yeah. residential space expensive. And then you look at a shop, and it's like, okay, so it's got a concrete floor, and it's got a roof, and it's got some sort of HVAC, and maybe it's got a bathroom. Like, bathrooms aren't cheap either. And it's got, you know, heavy electrical. But, like, that's about it. Like, there isn't most of those things that make a house expensive. You don't have in a shop. And so I just get kind of, I just get, uh, frustrated when i see how expensive this stuff is but it's like we're in this space you know like these small small businesses you know fabricators and and metal workers and and whatever we want something where we can legitimately weld something that's zoned commercial is helpful uh you know like if you get stuff delivered to and from your space then you get a better price if it's a business address and uh if you want to have insurance or if you want to if you want to open up an account with like qbp uh you're supposed to be you know in like a legitimate uh, you know, business sort of space. And so there's a lot of perks to being yeah. in an actual commercial space versus just like, you know, your garage or your basement or something. And uh, it's Absolutely. just it, until you get into really big spaces that are, you know, five and 10,000 square feet and bigger, usually the price per square foot per month is, is a lot. And um, it, it's just, it's frustrating to me. Yeah. I, I don't know what else I want to say about it, but I, because I know that it's frustrating to me, I know there's a lot of people who are looking for shop spaces and who have shop spaces who must be going through the same sort of thing, which is that, you know, uh, you, you wish that there were more options available to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, we're here in the middle of central Texas and we don't have HVAC. Wow. <laughs> that's yeah. gotta be hot i mean yeah. I'm, I'm sure tig welding is preferable to fillet brazing then for that reason because fillet brazing is hot yeah i, I remember fillet brazing at a bottom yeah. bracket on a bike once and i was not particularly proficient i could kind of do it but i wasn't like amazing at it so it's kind of slow and i just had the torch on for so long i was just wearing a pair of jorts in my shop and i was so it's just like sweating bullets and i'm like trying to trying to do my good work right you're trying to focus on the work but it's like you're just so just oh, like, yeah. just pouring sweat you can't even oh my god yeah you, you can't even see you got sweat going in your eyes yeah and you're like <laughs> your hands are all sweaty but at the same time you know that like getting the shape of the brass just right is going to save you so much time in finish work that you really do want to do your best work because, uh, you know, like 30 oh, seconds with, you know, moving the brass into the right spot will save you 10 minutes with the hand file. But, jeez. Uh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> L- luckily, we built, we, we, we had to build a little room in the back corner of our shop uh, so I could put a uh, window AC in there so I can actually go in there in the summer and weld. Oh, nice. Uh, so that that's my, that's my one solace right now. But as far as like, all right, now I got to go miter, and it's 110 degrees outside, <laughs> and, and we're and we're in a metal shop. Yeah, uh, is that where you? It's not you, the most kind of. You come into work at 3 a.m. to beat the heat or something? Oh yeah, dude. Like in a couple months, you know, hopefully if we're able to go back to work, yeah, I'll be I'll be getting up at. 530 and trying to get in by six or so yeah yeah that's yeah, brutal because it's just it's it's brutal and you know to to put an ac in you know you're 10 fifteen thousand dollars yeah yeah so. it's it's a tough space to be in and you know to buy a, a you know the right kind of building is very expensive and i don't know that much about it but i think when you go to buy a building like that it's 
I don't really know what I'm talking about, but my, my understanding is from some things that I've heard that, you know, like if you wanted to buy a house for yourself to live in, <clears throat> uh, the financing yeah. options are maybe more attractive uh, to get like a mortgage because, uh, I don't know, I guess that's like, you know, more socially normal. And so there's like a lot of uh, incentives that go into that. But for a business, I think a lot of times your your interest rate would not be as good and there'd be more hoops to, to run through. I think I've heard that like, Right for like a for a personal mortgage, you're looking at like twenty percent down is like a good starting place. And for like commercial, I think they want you to do like like thirty to fifty a lot of times. Or I'm not sure. Right. I, I shouldn't be talking about this because I don't know what I'm talking about. But I've heard that it's it's definitely more <laughs> more complicated to buy commercial property than it is to buy residential property. Yeah, and my wife and I kind of looked at that too about a year ago. Uh, we thought about moving out of Austin, maybe like 45 minutes or an hour outside of Austin. And we're looking for, we were looking for a property that had a shop on it. Yeah. And we found a couple and, and we thought about that for a little bit as far as like, okay, I can work, you know, about an hour away. I can do production. Vince can still be here in town. But when we really thought about it, it was, it was best for us to be in the same building. Yeah. Cause we are, I mean, we have, a, we have a lot of products that we we have a lot of ideas for stuff we want to do Vince and I and being able to collaborate and see each other every day and shoot ideas back and forth has really been uh beneficial for us so yeah we thought about for a little while and then we're like you know it's it's as far as for the business wise it's it's good for Vince and I to be in the same room yeah Uh, and like you were you were saying earlier uh being like we're right in the heart of boston so we do get a lot of people popping in oh that's great well yeah (laughs) maybe a distraction sometimes but well that's also the good part about having the partnership is that a lot of times i can continue to keep working and and vince is yeah vince has the gift of gab so he he can uh I'm more on the the shy reserve side. I like being in the back. Mm-hmm. I think we kind of alluded to this earlier in our emails back and forth. But you know, uh, I'm kind of like probably a lot of frame builders. I like being in the back. I like having my head down and just working. And luckily for me and for our company is that Vince has the time to walk the people through the shop, and, and Vince is very knowledgeable and able to tell people what I'm doing. If I have my head down welding or mitering this up, he, he's excellent at explaining to everybody. And, and people do, people really like to see the shop and to have it separate would, I think it would, it would hurt yeah. us a little bit because pe- people do like coming in and they like seeing the process. And yeah. especially if someone's going to going to give you their hard earned money, mm-hmm. they really like, like to see, wow, that's how you do it. And that's, really cool and oh you're welding that that's cool and Mm -hmm. people really like that so yeah we decided you know for the for the best interest of the business that you know staying together being able to prototype together being able to interact with customers is would been beneficial for us yeah yeah and it makes a lot of sense uh because you know for most people the experience of like being able to see the thing that you you know something like a bicycle you know, you never, uh, what, what is it? Like the TV show, how it's made was, you know, this huge hit because it's just kind of mesmerizing to watch stuff get made. And we're so disconnected from how things get made. And so for just even the, the average Joe, who's thinking about buying a nice bicycle for themselves, who, you know, is not interested in manufacturing or doesn't want to do it for themselves. It's novel. It's like, it's pretty cool to see like, Holy cow, like this person is 
is a wizard, you know, like, look at this, you know, they're cutting the tubes, they're cutting metal, and then they're, they're melting it and sticking it together. It's, it's pretty exciting to watch. I mean, of course, you know, like, if you're interested in frame building, then that must speak to you. But I can see how, um, if that is part of the process, and part of what you're selling, is that it's, um, it, you know, it's more special or something, then, you know, yeah, of course, the customer would be interested in taking a tour, I think, a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, you just brought up my favorite TV show of all time. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could sit there and watch. I, I am fascinated endlessly by how people create art, crafts, uh, a yeah. coffee mug. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just watching someone uh, use their talents in a way to create a physical object is uh, one of the most interesting things, I, I, I think, to yeah. me personally. I, and I, I could watch that show endlessly and it doesn't matter if they're making a tennis racket or a cookie. Mm-hmm. Just watching that process of giant machines making a little cookie or, you know, all that stuff is just endlessly fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I have uh, on Instagram, I'm tapped into, you know, all sorts of machinists and makers and stuff. And I know some people who do like old school uh, tool and die work, you know, and like they, they work in, uh, they, they support a factory that makes, you know, some like you know some sheet metal parts and and the machine is just boom 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 just cranking them out and spitting them in a bin and it's like not pretty or fancy yeah. but it's like you know they're making the the parts to do that or or machines that uh they uncoil uh a long you know heavy heavy coil of of wire and then it comes through some machine that's automated whether it's cnc or it's real old school screw machine or something and it's just spitting out parts you know maybe it's like a, a little hook bracket that has some bends in it and some forging and some you know some stuff is uh smushed on the end of it or if it's a you know more of like a screw piece or something but uh anyway it's it's cool not only to see that but then also to see the work that goes into supporting that um with the because so much of what i do with machining it's it's functional for the end user and it's you know you're making shiny parts and so you're putting a fillet on this and you're machining a chamfer on that and you're trying to make it a nice thing to to hold and to use and to make it pretty but uh a, a lot of these old school tool and die machinists they're making stuff where it's just functional and so they got to make it out of tool steel and they got to harden it and they got to do all these things that i don't even i haven't ever done i'm not that familiar with those processes and the thing is like not that shiny or it's it doesn't need to be pretty but like it has a very specific function and it's uh so cool to watch that uh you know the way that that works oh yeah yeah uh, i I was lucky my my dad was a tool and die machinist and like I remember being like 12 years old and there was a bridge port in our garage. Wow. Uh, Cause my dad was, was making parts on it. Like as far as like a, a, a manual machinist, I would sit and watch my dad make parts That's awesome. all day and just be like, and be like, dude, how, how did you do that? I have no idea. <laughs> he was, he, he was an amazing machinist. He was, uh, 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 this is funny too. Cause I've actually been working on a blog post since we've, kind of down at chumbo right now mm-hmm. and kind of like harking back to like kind of what we're talking about today and just <clears throat> when i think back as a kid and like just watching my dad make things and uh when i was a kid uh my my parents were super into drag racing so my dad built the cars and my mom drove the cars whoa we had yeah, That's and awesome. we as a family, we we traveled all over the West Coast 
uh, going to races and doing all that stuff. And, uh, it was dragsters were the, were the jam. And my dad made so many little trick parts on that thing that it would just blow your mind. And people would come up, other racers or people walking around, they'd look at our car and be like, where'd you buy that? And my dad would be like, <laughs> I made it, dude. <laughs> and, just, and, and just watching him, you know, that just really inspired me to, as, as a kid, you know, you, yeah. you look up to your father yeah. and just being like, wow, he, he can make all these things with his hands. That is awesome. And, you know, I guess I'm kind of, my dad was an aerospace worker. My grandfather was an aerospace worker. A lot of my uncles were. So a, a lot of my family has, has made things with their hands their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And I, and just watching my father make things, it just really inspired me to be able to have a skill like that. And I just always kind of pursued, like, how can I make something with my hands, make people happy, uh, try to make a living? I mean, you, you can't really ask for much more. And yeah. the, craft craft person or someone that makes things nowadays you know yeah yeah it's super satisfying to to make things and i think you know that's the listenership of this show probably is people who make things and aspire to make things uh but yeah i mean they can't be understated and sometimes you know when you're doing it every day you forget how kind of magical it is to i, I remember it dawned on me one time i was in my shop and i was like i'm cutting metal you know like most average people i mean maybe they know about a hacksaw or something but it's like you can't cut metal it's metal and that's like no if you know how though you can (laughs) and it's like you know melting metal like you know just think about like the average person in their life or in their kitchen or in their day job you know it's like they they're so far removed from these like sort of basic elemental things that I mean, it's, it's like incredibly exciting to, to like manipulate the things in your environment to your own ends, you know, to like say like, oh man, it's every, you know, every time I go to set my coat down, I don't have a place to put it. And then you build a hook and you, you know, I don't know what it is, but like just this satisfaction that comes from, from making things that serve a purpose that helps you make your life better and easier. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's the purpose of machines and tools and, and the things that we make is, you know, yeah. whether it's art and it's, it speaks to like your soul or something or whether it's a tool and it helps you achieve a, a very simple task or whatever. It's I just that's like, yeah, uh, it's, it's the best. Yeah. It, it, and like you said, it, it, it's kind of funny because, you know, when you're when you have a queue and you have people waiting for bikes and you're, you're trying to make new products and you're trying to design things. You know, you're so like you said. You're you're. Sometimes you get so focused, and it's like, okay, I gotta I gotta miter these eight top tubes today, and I need to miter uh, these C tubes and these chainsaws. And you know, it, it it's a labor of love for sure, and and it's a lot of work. But the one thing I will say is that when you put that bike together, and that person throws a leg over it and rides it around our parking lot for the first time, and just like the <laughs> smile on that person's face, yeah, it, it just it it gives me chills, dude. Because yeah. that person is so that person is so happy, and to feel that you played a little part in that and, and making them super happy, it's just super satisfying. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it is definitely uh I, you know i've only ever made a handful of bikes for other people but the first ride is always so exciting to see that the the experience you know for the end user i mean yeah i i i, I felt this and i'm sure you probably felt this too the first time 
you made your first frame and mm-hmm. built that bike and threw a leg over it and oh, rode yeah. it down the street. Like, I'm sure, like, the smile on your face is probably the, some of the, the biggest smiles you've ever had in your life. It's, yeah. it's such a good feeling when you, you're like, man, I, I fucking made this and I'm riding it down the street. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's this like, is, it's that, awesome. <laughs> it's the feeling of like flying through the air and like just gliding, but it's like all the, yeah, all the stuff that went into it was from you. And I had that feeling for sure. Like the first time I laced up my own wheel set, I'm like, Whoa, this is awesome. But yeah. Frame building of course is like yeah. the next level beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's uh yeah, it, it, it feels good. And, and to make <laughs> other people feel good by something that you make, uh, I mean, that's kind of the, the ultimate, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, it's super satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's most of the questions that I had for, uh, for our interview today. Cool. Uh, one thing that I always ask awesome. people <laughs> is, uh, you know, if you wanted to give advice to other people looking to get into frame building or if you could go back in time and give advice to your younger self on your sort of frame building journey, like what would you, what would you have to say, uh, you know, to, to help someone or to help yourself? I would say I don't looking back on what I've gone through. I don't think I would change anything. Uh, I, I feel cause when I started, I was doing, I mean, we're doing hacksaws and, you know, hand miters and all that good stuff. And I feel like doing that handwork really sets you up for later on when you want to do it with machines. Yeah. And being able to do do that stuff with your hands before you jump into machines and all that stuff is super valuable. And I, I would say as far as like myself is don't, I have a tendency to do to myself is that I, I get hard on myself if I mess something up. But yeah, I learned this in aerospace and in life in general, and you got to crack a few eggs to make some omelets. Yeah. So if you, if you met, if you mess something up, if, if you're learning how to TIG well and you burn holes through shit, if you do bad miters, it's just, it's part of the process. Don't get distracted. And if you have the drive to do it, you can do it. And just be patient. Be patient is probably the biggest thing. And yeah. It's, you know, it's it's not going to come overnight. And it, it, it takes time to get good at stuff, even to, like, braise the lug or fillet braise or TIG weld. All that stuff, it, it takes time. And just to have the patient and just stick to it. Because if, if you want to do it, you can do it. Yeah. I, that's that's how I feel. If you really want to do something, you can do it. And if you stick to it and just don't be super hard on yourself and just be patient and keep working, then you can get there. And also, just soak up as much knowledge as you can. Listen to podcasts like yours. Go on the <laughs> internet. Find as many books as you can. Just it's, the more knowledge you can have, is the better. It does. It doesn't hurt to have a lot of knowledge. So. Yeah, my thing would be just work as hard as you can. If you want it, you can do it, and just be patient. Don't be hard on yourself. Try to learn as much as you can. Like I went to carbon school. Like I'm never gonna make probably carbon bikes, but I went there to, to like get new perspectives. Like the more perspectives and ideas you can have and toss them around, you know, you can 
yeah. use all that stuff and kind of like, oh, you know, use a little bit from everything that your life, and then you can kind of guide your way along. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and whenever I think about frame building classes and stuff, it's like I'm not really principally trying to make bikes anymore, but every time I hear about Metal Guru or UBI or these different places, I'm just like, man, I want to I want to go to Paul Brody's class. <laughs> like I want to <clears throat> This sounds like such a blast to like learn and to see and just visiting more frame builder shops and seeing how more people do things. Like I mean, if I'm ever in Austin, I definitely want to uh, check out the Chumba shop and and watch you work a little bit and oh, see, yeah, see sure. your you know, I, I, you know, I know you got some anvil stuff and all these different tools and you got my bender and stuff there, but then there's some other things that you've made and some tricks that you've figured out to get, uh, other things done. And, you know, I'd love to see all that because I'm sure I'd learn a ton. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I, I think that's, you know, that's a great point. Like every shop you go to, you're like, Oh, what's that? Oh, look at that. <laughs> and I, I tell people, I tell people a lot too. Like people ask me, you know, like, well, how'd you get into frame building? I was like, oh, I went to Yamaguchi. And like, oh, Yamaguchi. And I tell people, man, it's worth it's worth the price of admission just to go to that dude's house. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. Because you you walk in his house, he has display cases, he has bikes that you know. You're just like, what's up with this? And then he tells you the story, and you're just like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you know, it it it's definitely worth the price of admission to hang out with Yamaguchi for yeah. two weeks. For sure. And you were saying you got interested in, in bikes with the whole NJS uh, track bikes and stuff. Did did, uh, did Yamaguchi, yeah. was he like certified or whatever to stamp his bikes NJS? I don't know. I'm not, I don't think here in the States, but. Because you know, when I'm, he was I'm, in I'm Japan, sure, you know, didn't he work for like uh, San Rancho or something? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if he was. I'm sure someone uh, who who knows him better knows that. But <laughs> yeah, I definitely had that same yeah, sort yeah. of that same sort of interest. I, I came to it later, but you know, finding websites that that uh, sold NJS stamps, you know, bikes and bike parts and stuff. Uh, you know, it's like you can buy the same Shimano Durace crank set, and if it's the one spec that they would use for N- NJS track racing, then it would have the stamp, and if it was a different spec, it wouldn't. And it's like you know. Yeah it's the same thing it's made by shimano but you know you want that stamp because it's the cool like they would uh i think they had the the uh the track cog and if it was the eighth inch pitch for the the eighth inch width chain it would have the stamp but if it was the 330 seconds width or whatever it wouldn't because that wasn't track standard they're the same part you know you you should pick the one that works for you but of course you want the one with the njs stamp (laughs) you got to you stamp hunting, dude. Got to get those stamps. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, man. There's just this allure of. I just love. I mean, for better or worse, I love that kind of thing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was it, 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 when, when I was into it, man. It was, it was the hunt. You know, you you found something on eBay or somewhere on the internet, and you're like, oh man, nobody's got that. I gotta I gotta buy that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Definitely. It was, it was it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, and what you were saying also reminded me there is there's definitely some uh, for anyone who hasn't seen on YouTube there's a couple videos of uh, uh, in the Nagasawa shop of the I, I, Mr. Nagasawa I guess I don't know his name but uh, the, the old guy making those bikes and he's got all sorts of really crude but effective uh, fixtures and stuff for like you know brazing sub assemblies and it's so cool uh, very cool stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I I've I've wanted to take a trip to Japan for a long time and maybe be lucky enough to go and 
visit a couple of those frame builders. I think that would be pretty yeah. awesome to do. Yeah, super cool. All right. Well, uh, anyway, yeah. I think that uh, that wraps up most of the conversation. But um, really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your experience. And uh, I'm excited to see the new stuff that you guys roll out with Chumba. And I, I hope that uh, you weather the storm of the, the COVID-19. Uh, really, you know, <laughs> hope, hope you uh, do well yeah. through all that. Oh, thanks, Joe. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on, man. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Cool. Talk soon. All right, Joe. Yep, Take bye. care, man.